This evening we're going to again do something a little different. We're going to be looking at what I like to call the real Christmas. And so if you want to kind of think about what this is about, think of it as the, we think of the Christmas story. Uh, and so I want to kind of begin tonight by asking this question, how many of you growing up, you were involved in some type of Christmas play, production, pageant, whatever you want to call it. Uh, how many were involved, and I'm going to start, how many were involved like at, at a school, at your school, you had some type of Christmas play pageant that you were involved in? Anyone? Okay. How many did it maybe at your church? You were involved maybe in a church production, something like that. Okay. You know, I think it just depends where you're at. But anyways, when we think about Christmas, a lot of times when we think of Christmas being portrayed, uh, when we read the scriptures, when we read the Christmas story, uh, what comes to our mind? And a lot of times it's amazing how our culture, how we are living and what we see, we read into the scripture and kind of think that that's kind of how it happened. And so kind of tonight, what we're going to be doing is we're going to kind of look at the story behind the story. We're going to look at the real Christmas. Now, I'm not saying what we do is fake. I'm not saying that. But I want us to get a, a better understanding of what was taking place there 2,000 years ago. As uh, when we think of the characters of Mary, Joseph, of course, the baby Jesus. We think of the shepherds, the wise men, the angels. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different people and characters that are involved in the Christmas story. And by the way, I want to first of all begin that the Christmas story is a true story. Okay? I think sometimes uh, we, we ooh and ah when the kids come, and I love it too. I love when the kids come to a presentation. But we kind of, in a sense, um, sometimes just kind of uh, pass Christmas off as that's a nice story to read to the kids. You know, if, if we think about that, it, it should challenge our heart. This is a real story. And this is a story that changed the world forever. And so uh, I, I cherish the times that we have as a good time to teach our children and to teach us as well uh, what the Bible says about the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I thought this morning, too, as we lit, uh, went into uh, Charles Wesley's song, uh, um, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, uh, again, it wasn't just your typical soft and fuzzy Santa baby type <laughs> uh, uh, Christmas song, you know, type of thing. It was very meaty, very doctrinal in, in many aspects, something that I think we should take notice of. And so today I want us to kind of, first of all, open your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians. We're going to look at a couple verses tonight that really focus on the Christmas story. Okay, so Galatians chapter 4. So when we think of the Christmas story, what when you talk to people on the street, even your family, your kids, grandkids, and you ask them, what, what is Christmas about? And usually what, what is the response that they give? Usually Santa is mentioned somewhere along the way, presents, maybe a dinner. Um, some of our folks, we might get a little nostalgic. We think of different Christmas movies. Uh, we think of like It's a Wonderful Life, which I love to watch myself every year. We think of White Christmas, and you can go on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We think of all kinds of things associated with Christmas. And by the way, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. These are fun things, fun stories in itself. But I think, again, that is secondary uh, largely to that. Now, you have a question. It's like, well, is there, I remember my kids years ago asking me, is there really a Santa Claus? I said, it depends how you ask that question. Uh, there was a real Nicholas. He was the Bishop of Smyrna in Turkey in the three four hundreds. Okay, and uh, 
So, and he actually did give gifts in stockings uh, to people in Turkey. But there's a little chapel there that commemorates his life. So there was, in a sense, a Nicholas, but he didn't probably dress up in a red suit and have a sleigh full of reindeer. You know, that's something added way beyond that, okay? By the way, quick question, where does the image of Santa that we get from really become popular? Does anyone know what company made Santa Claus really popular? Coca-Cola. <laughs> Very good. All right. So that's a little bit of just pop trivia for that. Okay. So the birth of Jesus. So again, in our minds, when we think of the birth of Christ, a lot of times, what do we think of? We think of a scene like this, a nativity. We have a nativity here in front of me even. This is common. Many people have these in their homes. Nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, I think, again, it tells, again, the story of, of Christmas and what took place here. But I think what we often have in our mind is kind of like a Hallmark card idea of what the Christmas story is about. We think of this idyllic scene with uh, the angels and the shepherds, the animals that are there. There's, uh, I'm not sure where Joseph is. There's Mary. I'm not sure where Joseph is. Maybe he went out to get groceries. I don't know. <laughs> But anyways, as they come here, okay, this is kind of our idea of a, you know, this is a silent night. You know, everything is calm and peaceful and everything. We, of course, we just sang that earlier. And so that we kind of get this serene, again, hallmarky type of setting for the Christmas story. Okay? With that in mind, I want us to go to Galatians 4 in verse 4. This is a very, you probably have read this verse before or heard it. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? Verse 5. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So this is talking about the birth of Christ in the fullness of time, at the proper time. Okay? God sent his son, his forth his son, his only begotten son. That's Jesus, made of a woman. Who was that? Mary. And how was this baby made? Okay? It was a virgin birth. Okay? We believe that firmly. Isaiah chapter 7 14 mentions that as well as in the book of Matthew mentions this as well okay uh, Luke chapter 1 so there's a couple passages that that mention about the virgin birth uh, and then why it made under law basically according to prophecy then to redeem them that were under law so again just kind of a snapshot of why Jesus came to this world he came to seek and to save that which was lost and so when we think of this beautiful scene we understand this that this uh, idyllic setting here, was this really how the Chris, original Christmas story looked? And so that's what I want you to kind of challenge our thinking. Challenge, be challenged a little bit in why uh, is what we see real, and let's dig into the scriptures, okay? Now again, when we look at this picture, when we look at this nativity, you know what this is about. I think even generally people on the street, uh, to a, at least some degree, they will recognize, oh, that's about maybe baby Jesus, or they will associate with Christmas, if nothing else, okay? Now, in our culture today, we're moving very quickly, unfortunately, away from the true story and the true meaning of Christmas, by and far. Uh, you often hear it referred simply as holiday. Hope you have a great holiday. Uh, by the way, what does the word holiday itself mean? Does anyone know? Holy day. Exactly. It, it means holy day. Think of the etymology of the word, holy day. And so if someone says to you, happy holidays, you can say, yes, it is. It's a real holy day, okay? All right, so think of it that way. You can kind of turn that on its head. 
Now, I think some people don't mean it to be a front against Christians or Christmas for that matter, but I think people are getting very used to that very quickly. It's just been the past couple of years has been very much like that. So you can easily turn that on its head. So yes, this was a holy day when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amazing, okay? So let's talk about this story in the background of the story. So I got to ask you this question. Where did the Christmas, where does the Christmas story begin? Okay, I'm going to have you participate just a little bit here this evening. Where does the Christmas story begin? Okay, yes, Renee. Genesis 3.15. I knew she was going to say that. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Does anyone know what, other than Renee, what is Genesis 3.15? It's the Proto-Evangelium. That's the big fancy word for it, but basically that is the first official messianic promise, prophecy, that one day the woman's seed will crush the serpent's head. Okay? Uh, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise his heel, uh, shall bruise his head. Okay, so that's the idea that we have. So yes, and why was that even given? Because of Adam's fall, we sinned all, and death was passed upon all men. We are all sinners. And so Jesus comes as our Redeemer. He's the promised one coming as a Redeemer. Now quickly go through Adam, through Noah, quickly go through Moses, the prophets. Now you have, of course, Israel. And Israel is wanting a king. First king is Saul. He reigns for 40 years. But God, uh, kind of, in a sense, out of nowhere... Uh, by the way, just a really quick thing to throw out, just something to think about. Uh, in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is blessing his sons, and then what does he say about his son Judah? What is the prophecy to Judah in Genesis 49? That the scepter, what, shall not depart, basically until Shiloh come. So in other words, the kingship, if anything, was to be given to Judah. But when you look through Moses, Moses is not from Judah, he's from Levi. Then come the next leader is who? After Moses, it's Joshua. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. Then let's go quickly to the judges, and then now you get to King Saul, and Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so you're dealing with a long time of, there's no one from Judah. Where, where's, the, where's the Judahites? And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in the sheepfold, back corner of the sheepfold, here comes David, the runt of the litter, so to speak. Okay, and God selects him out of Judah. I think it's kind of an amazing thing. So from and and we talked about this uh, on Wednesday nights back some months ago about the the Davidic kingdom. Remember that God told uh, David in Second Samuel chapter seven. He said, "There will not fail thee to make a man to sit on the throne of David." Okay, so we know that through the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom divides after Solomon. Okay, there's the northern ten tribes, and and then you have Judah after that. Uh, very quickly, uh, Assyria takes the northern ten tribes the year 714, or excuse me, 722 B.C., and then 586 B.C., the Babylonians take Judah, okay, because of the idolatry, because of sin, what was going on. Uh, and so, anyways, the last king of Judah is swept away. Then, when we talked about this morning, Zerubbabel, he comes back, and he comes back, and what happens to him? Uh, he is basically delegated as the governor of, of Judah, Okay, and uh, he is to build the temple. Okay, he's supposed to build the temple, and, and we talked about how that, but eventually it gets built. Okay, we talked about that. But then you go through that time, and then let me quickly go through the 400 silent years, uh, the time where there was no um, 
expressed uh, giving of, of Scripture by, by the Lord during that time. And then, out of nowhere, we come to Matthew chapter 1. Okay? So, this is what I want us to consider. Go to Matthew chapter 1. I kind of have to hurry because there's a lot. We're only in the second slide. There's a lot here tonight. Okay, Matthew chapter 1. So think of the genealogy of the kings of of Judah, for example. And where is the son of David? Where is the king uh, that's supposed to take David's throne? Okay, in the line of Judah. Nowhere to be found. Okay, and so I want us to consider a verse before we look at Matthew. And that is this. The Messiah... Isaiah chapter 53 mentions that the Messiah, he will come, that suffering servant, be more specific. He is one as a root out of dry ground. So the point is this, that the Davidic line had basically dried up at this point. Because who is in charge of Judea, of Israel during this time, now that we're in Matthew chapter 1? Who is in charge of the land? Rome, exactly. Okay, and yes, Herod was there, but after some time, actually, uh, forget what year it was, in the teens or 20s, uh, basically, Rome even took away governing authority even to do capital punishment. They, they had very limited self-rule at this time because they had Pilate in there, and then Herod did a few things, Antipas did a few things. Nonetheless, what, what my point is this, that the line, the messianic line, the line of Judah had basically, in a sense, dried up. And so where does that root out of dry come from? It comes here in Matthew chapter 1. How, or how does Matthew 1 start out? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And so you go through this list, and here is the genealogy. Again, this is usually what people read when they try to go to sleep at night. But nonetheless, this is so important. Matthew begins his book by listing out the family line of who? Jesus Christ. And what is his point? Here is that root out of dry ground. And so here's one thing I want you to consider. And uh, getting slightly ahead of myself, but this is important. Um, Look with me in verse 16. And Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So, in other words, you're here, and I want you to notice this. If you think of Joseph, Mary's husband, okay, and you go back in this line, what is Joseph in the line of? Who who should he be? If there was going to be a king of Israel and of Judah during the first century, if Rome wasn't there, kick him out, or whoever you want, kick him out, who was supposed to be king? Joseph. We don't usually think of that. He was the king, okay? He was supposed to be the king, okay? Really interesting when you think about that. There's some, um, some uh, interesting records that happened during that time in Roman history about how uh, so-called kings or messiahs were treated during that time. I'll leave that for another time. But nonetheless, this is very important. So here's the root out of dry ground. The family line of Judah, of David, basically had dried up. Now here comes that shoot out of Jesse, and here is Jesus, okay? And we hear about the birth of Christ, okay? So let's kind of go now into the, more into the Christmas story. And I'll kind of do this a little quickly here at the beginning. All right, so here we have in Israel today, remember we know that Joseph and Mary lived at where up at north? Nazareth. Nazareth, Netzeret means literally shoot town. Remember that shoot that comes out of Jesse? 
that Rudolph Jesse, that's the same name. It's called Shoot Town, Netzeret, okay? And so from this area, they came, and we know the story that they traveled here to Bethlehem. Okay, so here's the story. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, which is the city of David, into the city of Bethlehem. So let's look over at Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at a couple verses, and we're going to kind of, here in a moment, look at the kind of the background of the, um, of the Christmas story here. Okay, Luke chapter 2. We're very familiar with this. Okay, we read it, of course, every time about this year. Okay, and so Luke chapter four or 2, verse 4, And Joseph again went up out of Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, to Judea, and to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because, and here, this is why we looked at Matthew 1 a moment ago, because he was of the house and lineage of David. In other words, he was in the kingly line. That's the point of that. So it wasn't an accident that I think God used the, that census that was taking place by Cyrenius, uh, that everyone be taxed in his own city. God used that to do that. Now, here's the thing that was going on. By the way, Bethlehem, what does it mean? Bethlehem means, in Hebrew, means house of bread. So this is where Jesus was born. So here's the point of this. Names have great meaning in, in Israel, even to this day. And Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem or Bethlehem, means literally house of bread. He who was born of the house of bread became the bread of life. Okay? Uh, really important as we think about bread, going back to in history, uh, before Jesus, we know David was from the house of bread, from Bethlehem. We know that he took cheese and bread to his brothers at the Valley of Elah from Bethlehem. Uh, we famously know the book of Ruth, who is just centered in Bethlehem, is about the time of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest that's going on. Uh, so much that can be said about that. But anyways, uh, when you think about the house of bread, here's some archaeology. I mentioned I was going to share some of that tonight. And so back some years ago, there was a clay bulla, which is a stamp, a clay stamp, an official stamp that was uh, mentioned there, uh, or that was found actually in Jerusalem, in the old city of Jerusalem. And basically it says here, Lehamelech, which is belonging to the king, but it mentions it's from Bethlehem. It says, Lehamelech, may Bethlehem. Okay, so this is uh, from Bethlehem. In other words, this was a seal, basically uh, like, like a trade stamp of goods. When goods came, there was a certificate, you know, when you get like an invoice or a packaging, you know, description of what came in your package, it's the same idea, except it was wheat, most likely wheat that was brought in from Bethlehem into Jerusalem for the king. And this was common, by the way, this bulla here is dated from the, uh, basically the time of King Hezekiah or the prophet Isaiah. This is what it's dated from. So in other words, Bethlehem was an important industrial town, even during the times of the kings of Judah. Okay, so that's important to know. Uh, let's go to Bethlehem today. If you go to Bethlehem today, uh, Bethlehem today is actually predominantly, it's a Palestinian town, uh, especially per the Oslo cards. It's a high majority Muslim population that lives there today. There's a very small Christian population. It wasn't that way back before the 90s. Uh, before the 90s, there was actually a sizable Christian Arab population. When I mean that, uh, Christian Arabs, I'm thinking, or I'm saying that in regards to like Catholic or Orthodox. That's kind of how they view it there. By the way, today, Nazareth is the largest Christian Arab population in Israel. Okay? So today, if you go there, you'll find some shops, souvenir shops. Did you guys go to Bethlehem on your trip? No? Okay. So in, in, in Bethlehem, you'll find uh, 
different stores there, and there used to be a lot of Christian stores there, but or owned by Christian Arabs. Now it's pretty much all Muslim Arabs who run it. That's just the situation where it is today. Um, so when you enter into this church, the Church of the Nativity, uh, this is the church that uh, Queen Helena, who was the mother of Constantine, she had ordered, erected, and it's the one, oldest church in, in Israel, actually. has the uh, actually a wooden roof over it, which is very unique for that era. But uh, you'll find here the door of humility, and in order to ent- enter, you have to kind of bend down. And one of the big reasons they did that is basically so horsemen could not enter in. Uh, but there's a more sanctified message to it that you, when you enter in the, the place where Jesus was born, you should humble yourself and bow as you come in. So it kind of forces you to do that. Nonetheless, you have to stoop to get in, all right, no matter what. Okay, so here is the Star of Bethlehem. So you go inside the Church of the Nativity. You go down into a grotto where they believe that this is the, the place that Mary gave birth to Jesus. Is it the actual place? We can't say 100%. It's more so a tradition. But you do know you are in Bethlehem, so you can't be that far away. Okay, so uh, one thing that's interesting is this, that the, Queen Helena had put a star here, and that star was actually stolen back in the 1800s. Believe it or not, that was one of the causes for the Crimean War back in the 1850s. So interesting little story behind that. But one thing that's interesting is that there are 14 points to the star, which actually harken back to the 14 and 14 uh, parts of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Okay, so it kind of echoes back to the genealogy of Jesus, okay? Um, so with, with that in mind, uh, let's talk a little bit about now Joseph and Mary. So we're in Luke chapter 2, okay? And so I want us to look here. We see Mary, Joseph and Mary coming from Bethlehem or excuse me, to, to Bethlehem from Nazareth. It says in ver- verse 5, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Okay, and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Okay, so we know this. Now, as, um, as we focus on that, what is usually the idea that we have in our minds? That Mary's, she's about a, you know, she's could burst any day, okay, and she's on her way, and they're huffing it, getting all the way down to, their, you know, she's on a donkey, and Joseph's pulling her, you know, there's all these stories, and they get in, and they, then they start knocking on the doors, hey, we need a place to stay, we got to be here for the taxes, and we, we kind of get this scene where there's a lot of this uh, activity going on, but what is really taking place, and one thing I need to share about this is Mary and Joseph's relationship together. When we see here in uh, Luke chapter 2, it says here, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife. Okay? Uh, there are some people who, when they read that, what do they usually think of? They think of Mary, his engaged wife or promised wife. There's some people that say that. But I'll understand this, that Mary and Joseph were legally married already at this time. How do you know that? Because this is how Jewish wedding customs worked back in the time. And back earlier this year, we kind of did a whole message on this. So I'll try to be very brief as I can just so you can get the highlights. When boy meets girl back in the first century, okay, uh, young Moshe, he sees a beautiful woman at the well and he goes up and he says, yes, that's the girl I want to marry. They don't date. Dating is kind of a newer invention, so to speak, uh, when you think about it. And so anyways, what he would do is he would go to his house, and he would write out a ketubah, a marriage contract, 
to give all the promises, what he would do, how he would provide for his bride-to-be, things like that. And then he, once that was all taken care of, um, he would go to her house, and he would knock on the door, and they would kind of basically agree. The families would agree upon that marriage covenant. And uh, then the proposal happened, which he would pour a cup of wine or juice and place it in front of her, and that was the proposal. If she drank it, she says yes. If she says no, she would put it aside. Now, as she would do that, if she drank it, that means a wedding is to be uh, uh, supposed to happen. But that was the proposal. But if she said yes, if she drank it, basically that signified that she agreed to the ketubah. In other words, this is a legal binding contract, if you will. Um, and so this is one thing I want us to point out, why this is important. Because a lot of times people think, well, Mary and Joseph, they weren't really married yet. But they were, in a sense, legally. Why is that? In Matthew chapter 1, what does the angel tell, uh, tell Joseph to do? Do not be minded, put, put your wife, or take, marry your wife. You see how it's worded? Marry your wife, okay? Do not put her away privately, which means to divorce her. Let me ask you a question. Can an engaged couple get divorced? No. <laughs> there you go, exhibit A, okay? <laughs> All right, so how do you break off an engagement? One bad date, right? <laughs> Okay, but anyways, when you think about it, this was a legal binding contract. So when they go here to Jerusalem, now here's the thing. Why, this is the question I want you to think about. Why do they go then to Bethlehem outside of the census, outside of the, the taxation? It's because this. All of a sudden, what? Mary comes to Joseph and says, I'm with child. Joseph is torn up about that. And in this society, and, and you know, he finds out, well, who is the father? Uh, you aren't going to believe this. It's the Holy Spirit. You know, you wouldn't believe it either if someone told you that, okay? And so here's the thing. She is there, pregnant, with, before they are officially brought together, okay? There was two parts of marriage. There was the betrothal process, which they were legally contracted married. And then about a year later, he would be building a honeymoon cottage to his father's house. And then he would go and bring his bride and they would consummate the marriage, and then they would live happily ever after. So they're kind of in this window between those two events. Mary is with child. She's pregnant. And it's not Joseph's. Now, in our culture today, people kind of look the other way about that. We don't talk much about it. It doesn't have the stigma. But in that culture, that was a huge deal. It's an honor and shame culture. This was a sense of shame, that you have shamed your community. You have shamed your family. And remember this, that Nazareth was a town of maybe about 600 people. Everyone knew everyone. Everyone knew everyone's business. You can imagine the pressure that they would have been under. What do we find Mary doing? Luke chapter 1, what do we find Mary doing? She goes for a while, and who does she visit? Exactly. Her cousin Elizabeth. Why? Just to kind of get out of the pressure a little bit. And so one of the reasons, I think here, Mary and Joseph intentionally are moving to Bethlehem. It just so happened that the taxation made it a little bit more convenient. How do we know that? Because look with me in verse 6. And so it was that while they were there, in other words, they were already there setting up, that the day should be accomplished that she should be delivered. In other words, they didn't pop in one night looking for the closest hotel and while I have the baby. This was, this was planned. Another reason why we know it is fast forward to Matthew chapter 2. And we have the wise men coming from the east, and we believe that this happened sometime later. We don't know exactly, maybe even a year or two later. It just depends. But what, what happened? Mary and Joseph are found where? 
in a house. Okay? And so they're going there to live. That's the idea that's behind this, okay? And so now I want us to focus on something. When we think about Christmas plays and programs, when we think of that, we come now to verse 7. Let's point out a couple things here. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in the manger, because there was no, uh, no room for them in the end. This is a huge verse when we think about the culture or the background of, of the birth of Christ. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now, that wasn't anything spectacular. That was very common practice. You'd have basically bands or claws that were wrapped around. When you have a newborn, you basically, Drew knows this, you basically tie him up like a burrito, okay? And you hug that baby tight. And that's what you do, okay? That's swaddling clothes, okay? And then, here's the more, more important thing, and laid him in a manger, okay? Because there was no room for them in the end. So let's talk, first of all, let's kind of go backwards to this. There was no room for them in the end. Again, we have this idea that Mary and Joseph are going, they're knocking on the 7-Eleven, or oh, that, maybe that too, Motel 6, Days Inn, Holiday Inn, Hampton Inn, Hilton, who knows? They're trying everywhere, trying, and everyone, there's no vacancy because everyone's rushed it down for the taxation. That's what we have in our mind. Because why? We read our culture into the text. We do, without thinking. It's just, it's just how we see the world, and then we put the world into what we read. It's just how we see it. Okay, you read a book, and you think of, you have an idea of what that person looked like, the character, or where they're at, you have the same idea. Same thing when we read the scriptures. So, let's talk about, what does it mean, no room in the inn? Again, we think of the, like the innkeeper. Well, here's the thing. When we look at the inn, the, the, the Hebrew word for, or not the Hebrew, the Greek word for inn is kataluma. Kataluma is used in this part, in this verse. It's also used in one other part of the Gospels, and that is during the Last Supper. Where did the disciples and Jesus meet? In the upper room, which in Greek is the Kataluma. So, well, what do you mean by that? So, let me just say this, that hotels, motels as we know it, didn't happen in Bethlehem. It was just a town of a couple hundred people, number one. When people did travel to go to a hotel, there's a, actually, if you go outside of Bethlehem today, you'll find what's called the Inn of the Good Samaritan. I think it's a, is it a UNESCO Her- World Heritage Site? I think so. Um, interesting place, has some interesting history. But uh, usually what happened during these times, think of the silk routes, the trade routes. And what happened was this, when caravans were coming, they would stay at these little outposts, if you will. And that's where they'd camp out or that. In a sense, call it today's KOA, little hotel, whatever you want to say, okay? And that's where they camp out. Now, let me just say, those places were not usually a good place for women who were about ready to have a baby. They were not a safe place, okay? These are rough and tumble people, okay? All right? There's some hotels that you can probably relate to that are like that. That's, think of that in your mind as you do that. So, in other words, Bethlehem really didn't operate as there were hotels on every street. Again, that's how we see it because that's what we see in our culture. Okay, so what was ho- what were houses like during the first century? So when you had built a house, okay, you would generally uh, have a couple places, but you would either build into a side of a hill or a cave, and uh, that would be the place where you keep your animals. And so on this bottom floor here, this is where basically animals were kept. Now usually you have some pets, or no, sometimes there are pets. Animals. Remember, you had goats, uh, sheep, whatever it may be, and uh, and as as you maybe had a small little farm, 
what would you do? You would have to bring those animals in uh, under your care, into your home. And so they would usually be housed on your lower floor. The people would then live on the upper floor, okay? And then there was a top floor that was used for guests, and that was called the cataluma, the inn. It's the guest room. So here's the deal. Kind of reading into the text here a little bit. Mary and Joseph, they come to Bethlehem to get a little away from, I believe, the little bit of the pressure that's going on in Nazareth, and they're looking for this. Now, they're coming to Bethlehem. He was out of the house and lineage of David, which means he had family there. As they come in, hey, Mary and I are pregnant. We would love, can we come and stay and all that? And here's the deal. I think this is a little pastor Aaronology, okay? So take it for what it's worth. You, you don't have to agree with me. This is kind of what I think about it, okay? Um, basically, because of the stigma of her being with child outside of Joseph, okay? It's like, okay, Mary, Joseph, we love you, but because of the situation with Mary, it just doesn't look right. We really can't give you the guest room, the place of honor. And so why don't we do this? Let's just clean out a little bit of the, the little cattle area, which is basically downstairs. We'll clean it up, get it every presentable. And by the way, in that time, hospitality, she, Mary and Joseph were not by themselves. A lot of times we think they're by themselves in a corner fending for themselves and here they have a baby, okay? That's kind of what we think of. I'm sure, this, this is not in the text, but this is the culture of the day that the family probably would have assisted somehow with the birth of Jesus. They probably would have helped Mary, helped Joseph out. I'm sure they would have. And Joseph, he was a man of integrity. He would have done his best to, to provide for her that way, okay? Just, it's a thought. But this is how houses would have looked like in the first century, okay? When you think of the paralytic that Jesus healed, remember his four friends took him to the top of the roof, the cataluma, and they dug in the ceiling and dropped him down. That's the same idea that we have here, okay? So I'm kind of putting that in uh, just to give some thought. Okay, so we said that there was no room in the end. There was no room in the guest room. That's, that's the idea, okay? And then, going before that, and they laid him in a manger. I remember when we were in Tennessee, we were working with uh, children's ministries and different public schools and all that, and I would love around Christmas time to ask them questions about Christmas and what they knew and understood, and I so I would ask the kids, what's a manger? And I'm going to ask you that question. What's a manger? Okay, when we think about it, what is a manger? And usually we think of something very docile. We think of that Hallmark card, right? But really, when we think about it, okay, someone blurted out and ruins everyone's childhood. What's a manger? It's a what? It's a feeding trough for animals. I got to ask you this question. Mom's grandma's here. Would you ever put your baby or grandbaby in that thing? Absolutely not. See, I told you, this Hallmark version we have here. It's not it. And what, here's the other thing. What was it made of? Usually in our place, what is it made of usually? Wood. In first century in Judea, wood was very scarce. You didn't use it for stuff like that. Remember, in that area, especially near Bethlehem, you had a lot more of what around you? Not wood, but stone. Exactly. So I'm going to give you a little bit more archaeology. This is a manger. This is actually from Megiddo during the time of King Jeroboam II. Okay, and uh, if you go to Megiddo today, you can see these firsthand. There's a few around Israel, but this is a feeding trough for animals. You put your food or whatever else you have, and this is what Joseph, I'm sure he cleaned it to the best he could. 
And that's where they laid baby Jesus. Okay? This brings us to a very important point. Because why? When Jesus came to this earth, what, what do you do? For the, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that he might through his poverty might, might be rich. Okay? So here's a big thing I want us to point out, that Jesus, when you think about not getting the place of honor, even in their family's home, potentially, I'm just throwing that out there, being laid in a manger, which was for cattle, and all the things that were about, I would say, remember it says in the book of Isaiah 53 that he was despised and rejected of men. We know that happened during his ministry, and we definitely know that happened at the cross. But it also happened at his birth. When we think about it, this was his identity even at the very beginning. At his birth even, he was despised and rejected of men. So it's kind of an interesting story as we think about that. And then this is kind of an important thing. When the shepherds came that night, what was the sign that they were given? It says in chapter Luke 2, verse 12, And the angel said to them, what? This shall be a sign unto you, to the shepherds. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Okay, so the swaddling clothes wasn't really the sign. It was what he was doing, lying in a manger. And the, the shepherds said, what in the world is going on here? they would have easily identified that. They were shepherds. They used them all the time. And so this is very important as we see this here. So the shepherds were very instrumental. And by the way, during this time, shepherds were instrumental, especially in Bethlehem, for a specific thing. And that was, and I wish maybe another time we can kind of do a, a person, actually study on that, of the significance of shepherds' fields outside of Bethlehem. But here's the point. These shepherds were no ordinary shepherds. Now, shepherds were, at this time in the first century, on a lower class. You think of, of who the angels and who people would have received the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. You would think it could have been the kings, it could have been the priests, even the Pharisees, other people that were around, the Hasmoneans, what was left of them during that time. All these things, God sends messengers to announce the birth of a, the promised one to lowly shepherds. But again, they weren't just any shepherds. These were shepherds that their job was to watch over the flock of the sacrificial lambs that would be brought. That was their job. And so literally to know that one of the sheep, the sheep that they're watching, in a sense, I use that word, came to see the lamb of the world. Isn't that amazing? So we leave ourselves with this message tonight. As the angels told the shepherds, and they tell us today as well. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This is not, again, this isn't just a story. This is real. The real Christmas.